0: Good afternoon, Renewal. It's good to be worshiping here with you this afternoon. We are now in the deep truth of Scripture, Romans 9 and Romans 10. If you've been following along with us in our Romans series. So we're coming off the heights of God's promises, the promises of his love, the great height, the great chapter 8. And then we've gone down to the depths of God's infinite wisdom in chapter 9. Uh, his doctrine of election and predestination. And now uh, we're in chapter 10, the implications that all of these things have for gospel proclamation. So if you were here last week, we saw that how our salvation securely rests in God's sovereign election. And today uh, we're going to see how, how this wondrous doctrine of election, it doesn't make us idle. Nor does it make us proud, but it creates in us an an urgent desire to personally respond to this gospel and also proclaim this gospel message to the ends of the earth. So today we're going to look at this passage under three headings, three R's uh, to help us. The first is our rest in the gospel, our rest in the gospel. Secondly, our response to the gospel. Response and finally our responsibility of the gospel, and to keep in mind, uh, the first point is slightly longer than the others, but we'll go over these three R's for our passage. So, with that in mind, let me pray for us, and let's together ask the Lord's help as we study His Word. God, we do praise you that you've given us this Word this afternoon for us to to know to know about your love, to know about your sovereignty, but also to know about your commands for us. Without your word, we are lost, and we will not know anything about you. But we do thank you that you've given us your Bible, and you freely give us your Holy Spirit so that we can understand and grasp these wondrous truths of yours. Work in our hearts, we believe that your words are the words of life. We pray this humbly in Christ's name, Amen. So, after reading a passage like chapter nine, uh, we've gotten a small glimpse of God's infinite wisdom, studying His election of believers. And so, in light of that, we might get this idea that that predestination is arbitrary, that God is just frivolous in just choosing some to be saved and not others, or even worse, we might think that God is malicious in the way that he doesn't choose some to be saved. But see, we're supposed to think rather that God's election is one of grace, is one of mercy, is one that we can praise him for. And the question of whether you're going to have the right response or not is is what baseline, what starting point that you're starting out with? You know, if you believe that all of us deserve this eternal judgment, then for God to choose someone, to choose or let that person choose his sin and his way of life apart from God to receive eternal judgment, it's not unfair, but it is just God in his sovereign goodwill, yet out of those people, he chooses some to be his own. And he bestows on them this undeserved grace. And so from this, Paul, he's he's answering an objection that we saw in chapter 9. And one of those objections are, well, what about all of the Israelites in the Old Testament? Aren't they God's people? Why would God do so many things on their behalf? He would split the Red Sea and deliver them from slavery out of Egypt. He gives them the Ten Commandments. He makes his presence with them. So how can it be that the the nation of Israel is God's people, but yet amongst them only some are saved? Aren't all of Israel considered to be God's people? And the answer to that objection is, as we've seen, no, not all ethnic Israelites are true Israelites. But the true Israelites are the ones who are descendants of Abraham, who in their faith, they believe in this gospel. It's not based on a physical ethnic connection, but one of faith. And so Paul makes that distinction and he continues in that line of thought in chapter 10. So if you see in verse 1, he still has these unbelieving Israelites in mind. He's thinking about those who have not come to believe in the gospel. So he writes in verse 1, he says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. And so following that he writes the reason why they're not saved. And the reason here is, it's not because God was frivolous or arbitrary in his election, and it's definitely not because God was malicious in letting them choose to live in their sin. But the focus here is on those unbelieving Israelites. They're responsible for choosing their life apart from God. In verse 2, Paul writes, For I bear them witness... That they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So their unbelief is due to the fact that they are zealous. They work hard, and they work hard to establish their own righteousness apart from what God freely gives in his grace. And while some might say that having zeal is commendable, it's all for nothing. Because we see in verse 4 that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to all who believe. Their zeal is not according to knowledge. It's a blind zeal. That doesn't take into fact that God's giving his laws and his commandments because he wants to reveal himself and he wants them to love God behind their obedience and to love their neighbor behind their obedience. So somewhere along the way, these Israelites, they thought that if they showed just how zealous they were, just how religious they could be and and how stringent their lifestyle is, that they could be more righteous But what Paul is saying here is that completely misses the mark. Zeal without knowledge. And isn't that true? Being stubborn, trusting in your own full-fledged effort, that in and of itself does not always succeed. You know, one of the benefits that I have in having been married is that you learn a lot of new things from your spouse. And I genuinely do think that it was only after I got married that I personally made a salad at home. I never made a salad at home. So in one of our first meals, that was my duty to be preparing this salad. So what I did was I took lettuce and I ripped it apart and I washed it under the faucet and I started shaking all the water droplets off, each leaf by leaf. And I put my heart into it because this was one of our first meals, and she saw how into it I was, but then she comes along into the kitchen, she just gives me this strange look, and she goes, what are you doing? And I go, as the provider of this family, I am providing food for us. and she doesn't even respond, but she just goes to the cupboard and she pulls out this gadget that I've never seen before in my life and it's supposedly called a salad spinner. And this contraption for what I have seen is, you just pull on the string a few times and all the water droplets just fall to the bottom and you get this dry, clean lettuce. And when she showed me that, I responded, what sorcery is this? What is this you are showing me? Because I have never seen this before in my life. And my wife, she recently came over from Korea, and I said, did you bring this from Korea? And she said, no, I got it down the street at Target. <laughs> and not only this, but there are many other things that I learned. For example, did you know that there is such a thing called an apple slicer, where with one push, you can get perfectly sliced apples, We're all along... I've been cutting apples with my own small knife, using my effort and my zeal, yet without knowledge. Did you know there's a thing called a hard-boiled egg boiler where all you have to do is put eggs in this machine, push a button, tell it what you want it to, do, uh, to be. You want it to be half-cooked or fully cooked, and it comes out perfectly. Yet I was boiling eggs for a long time in water. Having zeal by itself doesn't always succeed, does it? You need to have effort with the right knowledge, doesn't it? Paul here is saying zeal by itself doesn't always cut it. Because the Israelites, over time, they took what God initially gave them in his commandments and they added a lot of their own traditions Where God's original intent was to to love God with all of their heart, mind, soul, and strength. And to love their neighbor likewise. And we get a glimpse of that in Mark chapter 7 where Jesus himself tells the Pharisees. He says, you leave the commandment of God and you hold on to the tradition of men. And we can get a glimpse of what Jesus was talking about. Even today in the Jewish religion, they have a book called the book of Mishnah. And not only are there 613 laws that Moses gave them, but there are also uh, 62 tractates, these long chapters of how to do certain things in life, anywhere from how to plant your seeds on the farm to how to wash your utensils. And Paul, he knew what this zeal meant. He lived that kind of life. In Philippians 3, he says, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more reason. For that confidence, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel from the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, he says, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But then later on in life, he confesses that how he was zealous, yet he acted ignorantly in belief. Saying that now he considers everything, everything that he does in zeal, it is rubbish compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. According to knowledge. The knowledge of the gospel. And all of us all of us are aware of what this zeal without knowledge looks like. Because how many of us are zealously putting in those extra hours at work, trying to stay ahead of our coworkers, or to be next in line for that promotion, or zealously studying into the long hours of the night because we know that our happiness depends on that grade, that GPA or that job security or the way that we prioritize our things, all the things that we need to do, our chores for parents, how much we can pack our kids' schedules with this activity to the next because we want to be the best parent that I can be. Best parent, best student, best worker, best church leader. You can fill in the blank. But underneath that zeal is this wrong assumption that if we finally get that or achieve that, then it can finally give us this happiness, this joy that I want. When all along, Paul is saying, Jesus is right here. He's near you. Why are you so zealously living after this and this and this and having this plan to graduate from this school and then go to that school and then get this job, get married by this age and have so much effort and all of these things as if those things will give you this joy, satisfaction, ultimately a right standing with God. Because all of that is zeal without knowledge. The knowledge of the gospel that's been freely given to you Verse 6, it says that this kind of busy, zealous life apart from Christ, it's impossible. Because no amount of zeal or hard work can bring you nearer to God. In our passage, it talks about how how it's as if we're trying to ascend into heaven and bring Christ down. And Paul saying, don't you see how impossible that is? But that's what living in your zeal is like, you pretending as if you can bring Christ down to you, or it's like as if you can raise Christ up from the dead. He's saying, can you do that? No. So then what what makes you think that your zeal and your effort can bring you any closer to Christ? But praise God that we don't have to ascend to the heavens to bring Christ down because Christ descended from heaven in that manger. Praise God that we don't have to go to the depths of the earth to bring Christ from the dead because he rose again by the power of the Holy Spirit on that Easter Sunday. And it's because of what Christ did, not what you are doing, not what you have done, but what Christ did that your ultimate longings and your satisfaction and your righteousness with God is secure. It is not far, it is near. And for those who are zealously living after this and that time and time again, my question to you is, aren't you tired of living like that? where so much of your joy and your heart and your emotions and your aspirations and your hopes are dependent on that school, on that job on that person liking you. Aren't you tired? You know, one of my favorite movies, is a movie called The Pursuit of Happiness, and it explains about this tired life pretty well. It's about Chris Garner based on a true story. If you watched it, it's about him, how he was at the lowest point of his life. His wife had left him without a home, He's going from one place to one place looking for a place to sleep. At one point, he sleeps in the bathroom of a subway. And to make things harder, he has his son with him constantly. And the whole premise of this movie is is, is he's running from one place to the next, one client to the next. And the director does a great job in making you feel like you're running with him. You feel tired throughout that movie. Aren't you tired? And I wonder how many of us feel like that. Tired of increasing the level of your zeal towards your job, hoping someone recognizes you. Towards your reputation. Trying to present yourself to be a certain kind of person, to be lovable, or the way that you look. Because underneath all of that zeal, now, there is this wrong assumption that, that the harder you work at life, the happier you can be. But that lifestyle, brothers and sisters, is this absence of the knowledge of grace. Grace that says your standing in this life is not based upon how hard you work, but based on the gospel that says God's love for you is dependent on the work of Jesus Christ. For Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And his yoke says, No longer do you need to earn your worth. No longer do you need to substantiate yourself based on how many friends you have or how much respect you can get at work. No longer. Do you need to be trapped in thinking that the only way you can be loved is by doing this or being that kind of person? The gospel of Jesus Christ says, come just as you are a sinner whose best and most zealous works are nothing but filthy rags, but give your life to him and he will give you robes of righteousness. For Christ It's the end of the law for righteousness for those who believe. There's one point in that movie where you feel like you're not running anymore. And it's right after Chris Garner and his son barely make the cut to sleep in this homeless shelter. And before they have dinner, they're at this worship service at the shelter. And as the pastor is preaching and as the choir sings, he's holding on to his son very tightly, And if you picked up the words of the song that they're singing, they're singing a gospel song by Mailea Jackson. And it goes, Lord, don't move that mountain, but give me strength to climb. Lord, don't move that stumbling block, but lead me around it. And right after that verse, the soloist comes in. And do you know what she sings? Because you promised me you will meet me at the altar of grace. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Romans 9:16. And so rather than trying to climb whatever mountain that is in front of you with your own strength and your zeal under this assumption that if you get this, if you finally accomplish that, then you'll be happy. Come to the altar of grace that's available for you right now that says my grace is sufficient for you and don't be tired any longer and rest in this gospel that god has prepared for you amen that's the first point our second point will be our response to the gospel our response to the gospel So coming off the tales of Romans 9 and this doctrine of election into our chapter here, we have to consider that there's a shift, a shift of vantage points here. In chapter 9, we were given a small glimpse of God's infinite wisdom, considering things like election and predestination. But that's a doctrine that you and I, we're not supposed to dwell in that for too long. Why? Because we will never fully comprehend the depths of his wisdom in election. Now Rick Warren a pastor he once said, you know trying to fully understand all that is of God's knowledge especially when it comes to these kinds of things is like you trying to explain the concept of the internet to an ant. Just can't happen. It cannot fully understand your ways. And likewise the longer we try to dwell out of our curiosity, trying to figure God out, trying to calculate it, it's going to be like us trying to understand something that we cannot. John Calvin says, you know, if it's more out of your curiosity that you're uh, diving into this doctrine of election, it's like as if you're entering a maze and there's no way out. And you will be there forever. What happens in chapter 10 now, now that we got a glimpse of God's wisdom, is that now we're starting to look at the other side of things, our side, the human side. Questions such as, where do we fit in? Where does human responsibility fit in, especially when it comes to the gospel, especially when it comes to evangelism? And so that's what we're going to be focusing on here. Because when we think about doctrine of election, one of the thoughts that can paralyze many of us is the question of, you know, if it's ultimately God's mercy and God's good will to say some, then what if I'm not one of his elect? And to such a thought, we should tremble, and of course this would paralyze us. But I'm so thankful for Romans chapter 10 because without it, we will be asking that question. We will be in that maze wondering, am I among God's chosen people? And here we see assurance. We see evidence. And Paul's saying that our response to the gospel and our responsibility of this gospel, that's going to be the assurance that we can go to. And the first assurance he gives us is in verse 9. If you look, he says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, here it is. You will be saved. Trust in that. For what the heart, with the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. And hold on to this. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Do you see the assurance here? That when you start wondering, am I a part? Am I among God's elect? You go to this and say, do I believe in my heart? Do I confess that Christ is Lord? And if you respond in this manner, you can have confidence. Confidence that you will not be put to shame, that you will be saved. And that's the evidence that we can go to of our response to the gospel, of us coming to Jesus alone for our righteousness. Jesus himself says in John chapter 6, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So what are you trying to hold on to? To understand the depths of his election? Or are you going to come to Christ trusting in his promise that if you confess, if you believe, if you call on his name, he will never cast you out. Because having... A peek into God's infinite wisdom in chapter 9. Of course we want something tangible, right? Something concrete that we can turn to so that we can be assured. And Paul writes the most concrete way we can have that assurance. Believe in your heart, Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead. And what he's writing here, he's not writing some, some magical formula or some incantation. It's not as if you can recite a certain combination of words and that's what saves you. But what he's doing is he's describing the effects, the effects of, of what happens when one receives Christ as their Lord and Savior. First, there's an internal conviction a belief that, yes, Jesus Christ is God. Not only is he the Lord of the universe, but he's the Lord of my life. And I believe That Jesus of Nazareth, he came to earth. He lived the perfect life that I could not live, even with my zeal, even with my effort. And he died on the cross for my sins. And he rose again on the third day, defeating sin and death. You believe that in your heart. And you confess that with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that he is your savior. And so you call on the name of Jesus, you have those two things, then you can have confidence. And these two things, they're, they're two things of the same coin, two sides. You can't have one with the other. But now, have you noticed what is not being saved? It's not just knowing about Jesus. It's not knowing all the doctrines of Scripture inside and out. It's not living zealously for something, as we saw earlier. But it's a decision. A decision that calls for a response. And my question is, have you made that decision? Saying, yes, I believe this. I believe this with all of my heart. And have you confessed that with your mouth? Jesus is Lord, the Savior of my life. One of the things that we do when we do evangelism training here at Renewal is, when you present the gospel, make sure you present them with a the decision. Will you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Because the point of sharing the gospel is not to fill their heads with knowledge about the gospel. is not to give them more information but it's to present them with Jesus Christ himself. And with that comes a claim, a claim on your life. And there is a decision that has to be made. It's not to fill our heads with knowledge. It's not having gone to church for however many years. It's not learning about the gospel. It's not having served church. It's not attending community groups. That in itself is not it. But perhaps in all of these things and all of the things that God is giving to you, maybe in those things, Jesus himself is presenting this gospel to you to make this decision. And has he made himself near to you? And I believe the answer is yes. And perhaps you sitting here this morning is proof of that. Of how Jesus is showing himself to be near you. Showing himself through you. Through your time here at Renewal. Perhaps through somebody here at church. Because he has made known to you this gospel of grace. And now he presents you with a decision. He has been near all along. You know, a pastor once said, we don't have to soar to heaven Nor do we have to plunge into the abyss. For Christ, the Son of God, has condescended to come down from the celestial heights so that he may dwell among us. He's risen from the dead, conquering sin and death for us. Yes, the gospel is near to us. And then he says, now pause. Pause and think about what is being said. How the gospel is near you how you have the English Bible in your hands, that the gospel is preached at your own doors, that we have the creeds, the prayers, the liturgy, they're framed and uttered in your own language. And he says, do you see how Jesus has made himself near to you today? And if you haven't made that decision, make that decision today, as the writer of Hebrews says, today, if you hear his voice, decide, Jesus is Lord He is my Savior. I pray and hope that you're not one of those who simply come to church, get filled with knowledge about Christ, about the gospel, about all of these things, but never personally made that decision, saying, He is my Lord, my Savior. D.L. Moody was a well-known pastor in the late 1800s once he preached to the to the largest congregation he ever preached at in chicago and it was on a sunday night and the title of his message was entitled what shall i do then with jesus christ what shall i do and at the conclusion of his sermon he said to his congregant he says i want you to go home and think about what i just preached to you and come next sunday And I'm going to tell you what we must do to receive Christ as our Savior. He was giving them a cliffhanger so that they could think about it and come really anticipating of how to receive Christ. He preached that sermon on October 8th, 1871. And the reason why we know that date is because that was the same night that the great Chicago fire had happened. And many of his congregants did not come back that week. And to his dying day, D.L. Moody says he regrets not asking, not giving this decision to his congregants. Will you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? If you never made that decision to believe, do so. Today is the day. Do not harden your hearts Perhaps during our time of prayer, after the message, you can confess with your mouth, you can believe in your heart that Jesus is your Savior. And if afterwards you want to talk about what this means to any one of us, we're here. But do not leave this place simply just knowing about Him, but embracing Him as your own. Finally, our responsibility of the gospel, our responsibility of the gospel if you look at verse 14, now we're starting to go into the second half of this chapter. And so Paul here, now he gives, the, he gives the second implication of what happens if you genuinely believe in the gospel. The first thing, if you remember, is we confess with our mouths, we believe in our hearts, we respond to the gospel. That's the assurance, that's the evidence that we have that we're among God's elect. But the second thing that he says is that this gospel that we receive and respond to, it doesn't simply stay in our hearts, but it goes out. The gospel that comes near to us, it in turn goes out from us. And so he asks these questions. How will then people call on Jesus if they haven't believed? How can they believe if they never heard of Jesus? How can they hear this gospel without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? One of the questions that arises when we read about God's sovereign election is, you know, if it ultimately depends on God, in his mercy, to choose those who are elect, then where does evangelism fit? Where does my responsibility fit to preach this gospel to others? And the answer to that is, expand your notion of god's sovereignty because not only has god ordained those whom he had called into his family he has also ordained the means to bring the gospel to them and that's you If you think about it, an author of a book, not only does he write the conclusion of the story, he also writes the beginning, the middle, and the end, and he writes the progression of the narrative. And in that progression of the narrative, he puts your name as the means, the means to bring this gospel to those whom he had called. He's sovereign over both. Sovereign over the ends, sovereign over the means. And so these two ideas of God's sovereignty and our responsibility, they do not contradict each other. They both must be upheld. As it is often said, both are true. Just as it is true that light can consist of particles and at the same time consist of waves. Neither dismisses the other, but both must be upheld. And so evidence... The evidence that you've personally received this gospel shows in the concern that you have for those who have not yet heard it. Do you have that? And when we start thinking about these things, we have to be careful We have to be careful about the way that we phrase these questions because perhaps we have asked questions such as, you know what, is it fair that there's people who haven't heard the gospel and yet they're going to face eternal judgment? That's unfair, right? And to answer that, it depends. It depends what your baseline is. If your starting point is that all of us deserve salvation and all of us deserve mercy and grace... Your question is valid. It is unfair. But we saw in Romans 1, that is not the baseline we are to start with. But the baseline that we are to start with is not only them, but even us. All of us deserve eternal judgment and hell. And if we start with that baseline, our question changes from how come they don't get to go to heaven with how come I get to go to heaven It changes from why not them to why me? And then we'll start asking the same questions that Paul is asking. How then? How then will they believe if they haven't heard the gospel? If no one is preaching the gospel to them, if we're not sent to them, how are they going to know? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news? Many of you guys know that here at Renewal, we sent summer mission trips uh, with a bunch of guys in our church, and oftentimes, we'll go to this less developed part of this country. And the way that we designed these mission trips is that, you know, compared to other mission trips, um, it's not that spectacular. Um, There's no VBS, no programs, no gospel presentations, but for about a month and a half, this is what a typical day looks like. You wake up, you read your Bible, you pray with your team, and you go and eat breakfast and try to order breakfast in a language you don't know. And then you go to language class for a few hours, struggle through that. And then you go try to talk with other classmates. You go to lunch and you try to have a meal with them. Maybe invite them out to hang out with you. You go home, you go to the supermarket, you try to pick up things for dinner that night. All to say, it doesn't look that exciting. It's pretty monotonous. But I always wondered how even though there hasn't been these great spiritual revivals or these spectacular experiences, every single one of us, we come from that trip, and our hearts are on fire to share this gospel. And I started asking, why? What was it about these trips? It's not like we did something uh, spectacular. To be honest, it wasn't that great on the outside. At the most, we get to share the gospel with one or two people, Lord willing. And, but when we come back, we have this, this urgency, the same urgency that Paul has. Why is that? And this is my, this is my best shot at answering that question. There are seven billion people In the world today out of those seven billion there's about three and a half billion people who have no access to the gospel we call them unreached they're not just unbelievers they're unreached meaning there is no bible for them there is no pastor for them there is no church no christian in their area meaning that many of them will never even hear the name of Jesus before they die. That's a little less than half of the world's population. And in the country that we were in, if you do the math, there's about one pastor for 10,000 Christians. That means there's about one pastor for 300,000 non-Christians you don't even walk by 300,000 people in a lifetime, let alone one pastor be responsible for the salvation of 300,000. And around the world, that's 70,000 people dying every day without once hearing about Jesus. And I think that the reason why these teens come back from these trips with this desire to share the gospel it's because because during their time there, they're brushing shoulders with these 3.11 billion people. They're walking by them. They're seeing them day after day after day. And after a while, this thought comes into mind, and this question is, why not them? Why me? I'm no better than these people. But how come, God, you made it so that I know about your son, Jesus Christ. How is it that I grew up in a church, that I was born to Christian parents, that I get to hear this gospel week in, week out? And they don't. Because at first, you might get angry at God. and say, it's unfair. Why not them? And eventually, you're going to ask, but then why me? Because you look at these people and you see you're no better than them. And if I ask you the question, how come you became saved? You might say something like, well, I had faith. And my question to you is, who gave you that faith? And you can say, well, I heard and listened to this gospel. I had a humble heart. Who gave you that heart? I was born to Christian parents who placed you there. If you keep asking those kinds of questions, the only conclusion you can have is, I'm better than them. Or the other way is to ask, why me? Why me? We'll never be able to answer that question, but we can respond to it. You know how? By being sent. By proclaiming this gospel. Take on this responsibility to proclaim this gospel. If you truly know this mercy, this grace that's behind your salvation, that for some reason, out of those billion people, God says, I want you. If you understand that, the natural question Paul says in chapter 10 is, what about them? Go. Be sent. Obey Christ's command. I want to end with this challenge that I've been really just dwelling upon these past few weeks. As I mentioned, one of the evidences that we have, that we've truly understood this grace that God chose you in his mercy is our concern with the salvation of others. We take seriously Jesus' command to go and make disciples of all nations. We take that personally, we make it a priority. And perhaps we need to be challenged And my question is, when are you going to start taking this challenge, this command, seriously? That you're going to make it your own? And how long has it been for you to, yes, I agree, yes, and amen, this is true. But have you made it your own? There's a pastor by the name of Francis Chan who's talking about this. And he says... That Jesus' command for us in these passages is for us to intentionally and to actively go and make disciples. And He says, it's funny how in the church, that when Jesus says to do something, we think we just have to memorize it. Jesus tells us to go and make disciples. He says. If I told my daughter, Rachel, to go clean her room, she doesn't come back to him in two hours and says, Dad, I memorized what you said. You said, go, clean your room. Aren't you proud of me? She doesn't come back later and says, you know what, Dad? I can say it in the original Greek, go, clean your room. She doesn't go, you know what, Dad? I'm going to invite some friends over. We're going to have a study on what it means if I clean my room and maybe get some bubble tea afterwards. And he says, my daughter knows better than that. So why do we think that we're going to come before the judge one day, quote everything he said, talk about how much scripture we know instead of actually going and doing what he commands us to do. God has sovereignly in his grace brought this gospel to you for some reason that I do not know. But I do know this, that it's so that it can go far, far to those people who have not yet heard and he has sovereignly given you the privilege, a privilege that he doesn't even give angels They don't get this privilege. We do. To go actively, intentionally, sending, even ourselves being sent. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the news of the gospel who have not yet heard the name of Jesus. Let's pray.